Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome everybody to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined on the podcast today by Jack Pitt-Brook and Charlie Eccleshare. Charlie, I have to start with you, Spurs, and please excuse the celebratory tone of my voice. I'm very excited. Spurs are back in the Champions League. You, sir, were right. Yeah, if you you can't take some joy, I think it's allowed to be a bit uh, insufferable about being right when, when you make the call, you're getting roundly abused for it. That, feel, that feels like an okay trade-off. By it, Jack, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, mainly by James, actually. Uh, um, I know. <laughs> yeah, had at the time of me saying all that, people been like, oh, you know what, Charlie, that's a really interesting view. Thanks for sharing it. Then I might not be enjoying it so much now. But when you're being asked, what are you smoking? You're an idiot. Yeah. Go F yourself. All of that. It is quite satisfying. You kept your nerve after Brentford and Burnley when I'd lost mine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the main one was Burnley. That was the one where got the most abuse but yeah it's, it's a hard one as well because i've spoken to jack about this before either you're accused of flip-flopping or you're accused of blindly sticking to your guns in this case it was the latter and it has on this occasion proved to be right but yeah i mean it was a lot of it was just conte and trusting that he there's something incredibly convincing about him and seeing him every week and the way he was talking and yeah i, I just thought he would have enough i mean and it was interesting because like speaking to non-Spurs followers, you know, th- th- they were saying... Philistines, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, Spurs' form... Because their last, you know, from their last 10 games, they won seven, drew two. It was exceptional. And it was at odds with everything we'd seen before. But somehow watching them, it didn't feel like it came quite so out of nowhere. Just given the that coincided with going to one game a week and we always felt that would make a massive difference. And do you remember on the... On the pod, it was the day Arsenal played Palace, and I said I thought from Arsenal's last 10 games, Arsenal would get 15 points, and that is what they ended up getting. And then it was a question of, well, could Spurs pick up the however many they needed at that point? It was still quite a lot, because I think they were three points back 
and Arsenal had a game in hand. But it felt possible. You know, they needed to be picking up more than two points a game. But I felt that was a target they could do with the players they have with a week off and most importantly with Conte. And so it's proved. But that's an incredible finish from them. To, to get it. Listen, we, I really want to get into the piece that uh, you, that you both, uh, but I think Charlie, you wrote it and Jack added pieces to it in the in the Athletic today's long, long read about how it all happened. But first, we should talk about the Norwich game because possibly the most unspursy event of all time. Although Spurs have a tremendous record, Newcastle notwithstanding, six years ago on the last day of the season. Of course, they're often covering up for being useless during the rest of the season by waving the fans off with a tremendous performance. But they went to Norwich and, you know, we talked about Tim Kroll. We talked about, you know, the referee might have a slip up. But Jack, there was no danger in it happening because Spurs were so dominant that Norwich didn't have a touch really in their in, in Spurs' penalty area. Their one chance, I think, mistake by Eric Dyer was shot from outside the area. Spurs absolutely just took the thing and made it a very relaxing afternoon for people like me. Yeah, I must admit to only having seen the highlights of this game. But from what I and Charlie will know more about this, but it looked to me like Tottenham not only could not only did they win five 0 but they could have scored twice as many goals as that. It looked as if they were getting through almost every time they attacked against a team that seemed to offer little or no resistance. Like I don't know if there was any moment in the game where it felt like they wouldn't win, but certainly in retrospect, it's incredibly comfortable. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely was. I mean, th- yeah, there was that one chance which would have made it one one. But Norwich are really bad and Spurs they are. are a very good side in good form. And I think it's funny because at this stage of the season, we massively over-index soft factors like desire and these sorts of things, which can make a massive difference. I'm not saying they can't, but they don't always. And, and I found it funny before talking to, obviously fans are always fatalistic. And they were saying, you know, Norwich, I know they've got nothing to play for, but they'll want to give their fans a send-off and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll give everything. And I'm kind of like, they could give everything, and I mean everything. They'd still probably lose by one or two because Spurs are also going to give everything and they're just miles better. But I, that was something I took great comfort from before the game. I honestly believe this has been, the in many ways, the season of the fans. If you think about what Spurs' fans did in the North London derby, if you looked away, Everton fans actually picked the team up and got them across the line to avoid relegation and contrast it with the small crowds and no crowds of the pandemic period. During the run-up to the game at Carrow Road, I was looking at various... Friends who support Norwich, looking at various of their sites and things. And they were having discussions not about how they would get the team up for one last throw in the Premier League. Who knows when we'll be back? They were saying, are you even going? Mm. So I knew that in the season of the fans, this is one relationship between fans and teams that had actually broken down, for the time being at least, irrevocably. And and so it was a stroll for Spurs in the sunshine. You have to enjoy these moments, don't you, when um, having gone through all the nervousness, the jelly legs phase of predicting the game when Spurs are two up at half time and cruising then for the whole second half. It's lovely to put your feet, in my case, because I wasn't at the game, on the corner of the coffee table and just drink it all in. Especially, Danny, on a day where, as Jack will be able to attest, everywhere out in every other race, it was nerve-shredding, you know, yeah. horrific fan experience. Whereas the only one that wasn't was Spurs, supposedly the you know, the bottlers in chief who were absolutely in control. And it was done after, well, probably the first goal, but certainly after 32 minutes when the second went in. Was there much by way of kind of away end celebrations at the end? I assume all the Spurs players would have gone over to the away end. Yeah, yeah, they did. And and the, and the it was just such a, 
joyous occasion for those away fans because I think they had probably been fearing the worst that it was going to be I think most probably thought they'd get the job done but that it could be really fraught and if for whatever reason Spurs were drawing knowing that you're a goal you know if ever you're a goal away from something slipping away you're going to be extremely nervous but as it was it was just a it was just a lovely day out in the sun I really, really enjoyed your piece this morning, the pair of you. It was an extraordinary read, not least because I agreed with most of it, not all of it, but most of it. But just taking the bigger picture first before we get into the individual components of what you wrote. This has been, in my experience, and I've been around a long time, one of the most extraordinary seasons I've ever experienced with Spurs. They took two months to find a manager. They appointed the wrong manager. They sacked the manager. They bring in a manager who didn't want the job. They they were top of the table after three games. They lost the next three games. They then went through that business where they were, they didn't have a shot at goal <laughs> for hours and hours and hours, a shot on target. We were making jokes about, about you know, films and runs of albums. They went through that. Then they went to win, lose, win, lose. Another extraordinary sequence that you never see in the Premier League. All the while, the manager is every third or fourth game blowing up um, about how he's no good, the club's no good. <laughs> and then they accelerate in the last third of the season into an ext- a fantastic run of goal scoring and goal defending. Jack, if I asked you, given all those things and what a crazy season it was for them, how big an achievement is it just that they actually finished in fourth place in the Champions League places? Yeah, it's a huge achievement. It's a huge achievement. To I mean, 71 points is their best is their best point, point total since Pochettino was there. And they did it having had, for more than a quarter of the season, they had a manager who had no interest in scoring goals or creating chances and no ability to... And no, and no ability, not just that, but also, frankly, no ability to really connect with his players or motivate his players. And as we've talked about before, the actual, the actual points total at that point wasn't as bad as it should have been, really. 15 points from 10 games isn't... Like, 1.5 points per game isn't disastrous. Only five points off top four. Yeah, but it was still a terrible appointment and they were playing very badly and they would have continued to play badly. And if we're honest, you know, their points haul probably would have regressed a bit and they would have ended up around, I don't know, high 50s, low 60s in terms of points, like somewhere roughly around where Manchester United are at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And it would be another season in the Conference League next season. So, uh, yeah, it it is a huge achievement. I think it it just goes to, to show something which is really obviously true to anybody who watches football, but does sometimes I think need to be reiterated. And that is, managers matter. They really matter. You know, there are genuinely some people out there who think that managers don't make a difference. But this is the biggest example I can think of, of the turnaround that you get if you replace an average manager with a great manager. Because Conte is a great manager. And what he's what he's done in this three quarters of a season is great Is great management and great coaching it's it's i can't think of i was trying to think earlier what what's another example of a manager coming in mid-season and making such a big difference to his team i mean even like jürgen klopp has done an amazing amazingly well at liverpool obviously and he's built something incredibly permanent and built to last but i don't think he he didn't transform their fortunes within the 15-16 season quite as radically as Conte has done with Tottenham so I just can't I'd be really interested to hear if any listeners no, the, have got the, the, the only ones we can think of are, are Chelsea managers who come in mid-season and won big trophies Di Matteo but that is that's they, true but, like but the, they, are the, they are the E that proves all ours aren't they they're the exception to every rule Chelsea yeah so Di, Di Matteo 2012 Champions League final Gus Hiddink 2009 yeah. FA Cup but, was pretty good but even then it's not like I feel like what Conte is building is also likely to be more perfect. Permanent than yeah. 
what like there was a lot of luck in that Di Matteo 2012 Champions League run. I think it's very different coming in and winning a cup because that's almost what you're doing. That's a kind of glorified new manager bounce in a way. I mean, Di Matteo came in in February. I don't think anyone at that point, you know, when they won, even when they won the Champions League, really thought, okay, he's the answer. It, it, it's extremely unusual to come in. You know, and, and Klopp, actually, in his first season, they got to the UEFA Cup, uh, the Europa League final. In an, but again, they were winning games sort of through sheer force of character and the Anfield factor, etc. But I think they finished eighth that season. So, it, yeah, I, I'm struggling to think of another example like that. I mean... Harry no, Redknapp replaced, replacing Juan de Ramos was really... Yeah. That was a big improvement. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah. that's a, a good big one. improvement. That's the, that's the one thing that comes to my mind, but I'm sure there must be other examples. Just less glamorous, I guess, because you're taking a team still, you know, from two points from eight games to sort of upper mid-table, whereas this to, to get you in the Champions League. But, I mean, it is crazy because you're talking about... It was only a five-point deficit, so it wasn't. Th- that's, I think, where Spurs, and we and we talk about this in the piece without wishing to uh, give any spoilers. But it, it worked out. I mean, Nuno, he he was a, one thing he did do very well, and I've said this before, is that he was so bad he got quit. He got sacked quickly enough, but he was so bad without the points tally being so disastrous that the season was irretrievable. You know, he left, he actually left just based on points, he left sooner than was than he should have done. But it was just so abundantly clear the performances were way worse even than the points tally. He His win against Manchester City were three critical points. If you look at it back yeah. now, nobody beats Manchester City. He got one of those two victories over City that have allowed Spurs to qualify for the Champions Wolves League. Wolves away so. was a good win at the time. Or, or, or at least halfway through the season, like a very good win. But all of those, the, the Nuno wins were so marginal and so contingent. And even, it's amazing, isn't it? Because obviously the Nuno wins created the points base for Tottenham to be in the Champions League. So we can't say that they, you know, it's a, I don't want to like disregard them completely. But it's true to say that all the Nuno wins were so marginal and contingent that if a few bounces of the ball had gone differently, then Tottenham after 10 games, instead of having 15 points, could easily have had five points. Yeah, they're Six all single, all, all single goal yeah. wins. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's just one of like with any, and this is what's always really fun when you look back on a season. You know, there are so many of those little moments, and you know, we'll get to those. Stephen, Stephen, Stephen Bergwijn. Bergwijn. You, well, know. Uh, you know, I made made the point in the piece that in from January first to the City game in mid February, Spurs won eight points with stoppage time goals. That's pretty amazing. Se- no, se- seven points. Seven points. That's incredible. The question I asked Jack about, you know, just how big an achievement it was, if it wasn't for the inconsistency of Manchester United, Arsenal, and to a lesser extent, West Ham, I would say it was a miracle. So I'm not calling it a small M miracle. That Not that Spurs have got bad squad of players. They've got two great forwards in magnificent peak period form and all the rest of it. The point being that it's such a, a season of so many mad things happening to find themselves eventually in fourth place. It really is a, a small M miracle. That's, that's that's disallowing for the fact that Christian Romero spent half the season mm. flying around, not playing, <laughs> getting COVID, play, quarantining in Croatia. Absolutely mad. Everything that could happen this season has happened. It's been amazing, uh, miraculous. I I can't tell you how excited I am about Spurs getting back in the Champions League. I really, really am very excited. So the piece that um. Uh, that you wrote between you. How did he do it then? You've broken it down into three phases. Let's talk about the first one. His appointment, Charlie, and the almost 
brutal shock therapy that he, that was, uh, he either felt was needed or just as his natural way, Antonio Conte. Yeah, and, and this is something building on a piece Jack and I did right when he started. We looked at his first week in pretty forensic detail. And yeah, obviously the sort of the headline grabbing stuff was the ketchup ban and that sort of thing. And uh, when, when did the ketchup come come back in? Because it had, I thought they'd been through all this and had, were eating properly, and then suddenly I realised it's all it's all cake and uh, monster munch again at the ground. I think that jo- I think that Jose and also Nuno, I'd imagine, would have had pretty relaxed attitudes to yeah to diet, certainly compared to Pochettino. I mean, the the, the Pochettino regime was much stricter on uh, diet, conditioning, fitness, that kind of thing. The than the Mourinho era was, and 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 I know a lot of this is very much in the football cliches territory, but this is something Jack and I have been told again and again that there was a sense of standard slipping post Pochettino, and Conte came in and was very very strong on all of these details, um, and yeah, you know, felt that the players were not in the requisite shape and. And work them extremely hard. And I think what was really important was that they could see, you know, with with any of these things, you need to see results. And in Conte's second league game, they outrun Bielsa's leads. And I just think, and then do you remember after four or five games, the stats were flashing up on Sky saying they were running more than anyone in the league, having run less than anyone in the league under Nuno. And so I think the players, there was instant buy-in and the results were good. You know, if you remember, he didn't lose in his first eight or nine league games they won three and drew one of their first four so there was that instant buy-in which was really, but let really me, important let me, let me ask you about let me ask you about that uh, first of all do we do we know who was actually eating the nachos the infamous nachos no i do but i i'm not gonna say oh for, for legal reasons <laughs> we can't tell you who's eating nachos jack uh, uh, that stats that um or that that fact that to Charlie pulled out there that uh, they outran clearly the, the the fitness kings of the Western world in in Bielsa's Leeds United, but the point was in my mind when I read that they couldn't have transformed themselves physically. I think it was twelve days uh, between his arrival. It was a and few the weeks because they did have an international break. But yeah, all right, very short time. So that tells me when Spurs go from being the least running team in the league to outrunning Leeds, that some of this at least was just a lack of effort from the players under Nuno. Charlie got it right when he said buy-in. Like, I think that the, you know, the, this is the most important thing when any manager takes over any new job is to what extent do the players buy into his ideas and methods? And honestly, I don't think there's been an awful lot of that at Tottenham in the last in the last few years. You know, clearly the players weren't having Nuno. I think a lot of the players didn't like Mourinho by the end. And yet with Conte, because he's so good and he's so convincing and he's so he's been so successful and he's so passionate... All, I, I think basically all the players have been really into it from the start. And when Conte told them to do, when Conte told them what to do, they did it. And that makes such, a, you know, that sounds really obvious, but it does make it does make such a difference that the players were so committed to doing what Conte wanted, and they had proof that it worked. You know, they weren't just taking it on trust. It wasn't like a blind. It wasn't just a kind of leap into the dark. Like they knew that Conte's had success everywhere he's been. Uh, and that that really that in itself has completely transformed the whole feel of the football club, and that's why I think they were able to put a lot more effort in. And the, but equally, it's also worth remembering what a huge achievement it is from Conte to have done all of this 
while playing twice a week at the start of the season. Because under normal conditions, Conte would show up in June, take pre-season, run the players incredibly hard, teach them all his ideas and everything in pre-season. And then you start playing football in August. Whereas Conte showed up on, what, the second, first or second of November? And then all of a sudden he's got Vitesse on him in the Europa League. And he's having to juggle what is a really difficult calendar anyway with really tired players because of non-stop COVID football. And he's had to, he has to get them fitter and teach them his style of play and also play two matches a week. And obviously it's, you know, it got easier in the second half of the season when they were down to one a week game-wise. But that is such a difficult juggling act. And it, it's kind of it is kind of amazing that he's... I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, well, of course Conte's a great manager and he got them to yep. fourth. But if you think if you take a step back and think about it, it's like, no, this is actually an incredibly difficult thing that he's done. And he's nailed it. And he's talked about that a lot himself. He's constantly reiterated that fact that he hasn't had a preseason and how important that is to him. The one game a week thing is massive. He's referenced it a lot. And at the time of the Everton game, which they won 5-0 off the back of six days between games, he talked about it unprompted. And I looked at the numbers and it was so stark, the difference. And that's why as well, that, that Europa Conference League elimination is a massive sliding doors moment in this season. Like that really is so so important because if you think it was a two-point gap at the end of a season if they'd gone deep in that competition that just would have drained resources massively but Char- but charlie i i i i i've sometimes struggle with this because antonio conte has been playing two games a week i would going to say all his managerial career well, with the exception of what he was at, at atalanta but pre-season is massive there that's that's the big big difference and he would if you if you ask him that question that's what he would say he would say yeah it's not about it's not that i can't do two two games a week i think he would bristle at that suggestion the massive thing is there was you want to be playing two games a week exactly. shows you're successful exactly yeah. exactly antonio conte is not going to be going to clubs who aren't in europe you know the chelsea was a complete freak that massively played into his hands but mm. that it's pre-season there wasn't that foundation and and that's why and, and what makes such a big difference then is that he was, you know, I talk about this in the piece, people at Spurs said he had this, the vibe was of a man in such a hurry, so much to do, so little time. And that means you're then having to, in a way, overload the players, both physically, but also with things like video analysis sessions. So you're having sure. to do them for an hour plus. That's tough on the players. You get a week, you split those into two or three, you make them more digestible. So it's all of those things. And without the preseason, that's that's just massively exacerbated because... The players don't know his methods. And I would say as well, like I think it's been easy because he's spent a lot of the season complaining about Tottenham and saying they're not good enough or he's not good enough or they're not ambitious enough. That slightly masks how much of a crazed workaholic he is. And none of that affects his commitment. And the players have seen, you know, like with anyone, if your boss works incredibly hard, that sets that example. The players know that he is pushing himself to the limit so they need to do that. And then they get the reward, you know, in that January to February period. They get the last minute winner at Watford. They get the last minute equaliser or stoppage time winner and equaliser against Leicester. And then the stoppage time winner at Man City. So it's all just kind of vindicating why he's being so kind of uh, intense and demanding of them. But it doesn't feel that way when you're getting results. Listen, we'll take a break there. After a very successful start, you could argue, late goals team buying in, everything going in the right direction. And we'll come back after the break and discuss the the middle of Conte's 
so far, frankly, supporting the football team is always a roller coaster. I have felt this season at Spurs, it's been like being on a roller coaster, which happens to be on fire. <laughs> um, and we'll talk. We'll talk next about when the fire starts in the middle of Conte's reign, when they start to play indifferently, and he starts to demonstrate all kinds of traits that we hadn't expected necessarily from the manager of Spurs. You're listening to The View from the Lane as we continue to celebrate, and there's no other word for it, Tottenham's arrival in the Champions League. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. With me today, I'm delighted to say Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare are continuing to discuss a very long, fantastically well-researched and beautifully written piece that the lads wrote in The Athletic this morning following Spurs' victory at Norwich that sees them back into the Champions League. And, Jack, we were talking a a little earlier about how the instant impact that the manager made physically, psychologically, culturally, and then we get into the second phase when the honeymoon, to use your words, the pair of you, ended. Um, There were bad defeats, bad performances, let's be honest, kind of 
listless, thoughtless performances where they couldn't break down teams that put in low block against them and all the rest of it. And Antonio Conte's responses to those. I did get a bit worried, certainly in what we, I guess we might call this kind of January, February wobble. Like, I thought those Chelsea games seemed to take a lot out of him. But even then, and this is something we refer to, even be- before those, he was starting to get very tense. So he was very upset after that game they drew at Saints, just after Christmas, where they I thought they kind of played okay, got unlucky with a few VAR decisions. While Conte was, he, he was kind of pretty balanced, I thought, in, in, in his public press conference afterwards. He was furious in private with it. And I definitely think, you know, that he raised a few eyebrows internally with how he how he conducted himself after that game. But, I mean, the obvious thing to talk about here is Burnley away in February. And look, I... Astonishing. I was not as confident as Charlie after that game. I can't remember exactly what I thought. I could go back and double-check. But I, um, it was weirdly, it was, it was a press conference on Zoom. It was one, one of the last of those. So I just remember being sat in the freezing cold and sideways rain at the top of the stand at Turf Moor. You'll miss that. We, we You'll miss that. Yeah, I will miss Turf Moor. And I was set, like peering into, peering into my laptop as Conte went into a, you know, a small room underneath that main stand at Turf Moor and was himself talking into his own laptop, which you know is obviously you know, in a few years' time will sound and look ridiculous to, to think about, and then went off on this, what we can only be described as a bizarre rant. Conte has retrospectively said that it was like clever political strategy, but it didn't feel that way at the time, not least because he kept on saying, he, he'd done various different media interviews and said more or less the same thing every time. And at that point, I just thought... He's going to throw in the towel, and obviously, I'm pleased that he didn't resign that evening, uh, and didn't throw in the the towel remains not thrown in because it was it was pretty worrying. The the th- the thing is, Charlie, we talked about can we remember any manager making such a big difference, but but in a club that they joined mid season, and with the exception of the one or two mad things that happened at Chelsea, and um, we couldn't think of one. Well, I can't think truthfully of an outburst by a a, a sitting manager. No, who's not at you know you can often you know, people have been at a club for two and a half years and they know that the act is just is literally around the corner when they finish this press conference I can't hmm. remember a press conference like that or comments by a sitting brand new manager it was an extraordinary press conference or whatever is it even a conference if you're all looking <laughs> at laptops I don't know it was yeah sort of tirade yeah I mean it was. Yeah, that period, I say in the piece, like if the first couple months was honeymoon, this was very much the, oh, good God, what have I done period, you know, where it really felt like he was massively regretting taking the job. And and that was definitely the sense of a lot of people uh, inside the club. And yeah, I mean, speaking to people about that, you know, Conte's claims that he, aha, it wasn't being emotional. It was all just kind of carefully calculated real politic. Yeah, people dispute that heavily. And, and, and what's interesting is that even experienced Conte watchers I remember at the time were saying this is beyond even what he normally does you know yes he can be emotional but this is this is beyond all that and everyone Jack and I spoke to at that time pretty much unanimously was saying there's no way this guy is at Spurs next season no way and it was hard to it was hard to shake off that sense and one thing that's interesting is the following game a few people have said was really important that Leeds 4-0 win and it's great. I mean, I remember getting the train up there and, you know, the mood was so downbeat. Spurs had a negative goal difference. It was it was basically they, the end of they, February. They'd lost four of their previous five, except exactly. for that amazing win at Manchester City. 
and and that was and I asked Contechi about this on Friday about sort of looking back you know how, how big a turning point that Burnley game was because since then only City and Liverpool have got a better points per game because I think at the time he was so angry he didn't really elucidate why that anger existed but he was saying you know a lot of it was the fact that they had beaten City and then it felt like they just tossed that away with a bit of a mere performance so I think that was what was really what riled him but anyway that Leeds game I think a few people have said that was really important in just in just getting that belief back and for the players to show that they were fighting for the manager because you know we've seen before if you go that strong that doesn't always have the desired effect and the players can seem a li- can seem a bit demotivated because it's like, well, you clearly don't really want to be here. Why should we fight for you? But they they played well. I mean, they were helped. It was the last game of the Bielsa era, and Leeds were a bit of a shambles. But they won four 0 And you remember the first goal was Sessignon squaring it for Doherty, and afterwards yeah. Conte said, "My system is starting to work." And then they followed that up. In between, they lost to Middlesbrough, but they followed that up with a five 0 win against Everton. And after the Everton game, it was so striking. It, and I've said this before, but it was like a political leader launching his manifesto. For the first time, he said, yeah, we're in for the Champions League places. We want to get top four. Having always demurred about that and sort of... Which you in know, turn flushed out the players because Harry Kane had to back him up then, didn't he? He said exactly the same that night. And it was so clear that that had been the message in the dressing room and that the players believed. You could see it. Like that was That was a point at which... Yeah, there was a change then, and and Conte has, Conte said that on Friday as well. He said, you know, something changed in that period. They did start to believe. Among the things he was complaining about, Jack, uh, in this middle period of, of of his reign, not the season, was the inability of Spurs to bring in certain players during the January transfer window. But now, retrospectively, how important was it that they got Benson Kerr and Kulisevsky across the line? I mean, he wanted others, and we know there was a very high-profile chase for Adama Traore, etc. But those two came in, and they now look like they were critical, critical moment. It was when they got those two across the line. Looking back, one of the crucial moments in this whole campaign is the fact that um, so Arsenal were really close to getting Kulisevsky on loan. Like they'd been speaking to Juventus, but they couldn't agree a deal because Juventus wanted more guarantees in terms of an option and obligation, which Arsenal didn't want to do. Arsenal, ju- Arsenal just wanted the loan. So that move kind of stalled. And then Paratici has obviously been a huge fan of Kulisevsky his whole career. He came in, he managed to do a more amenable deal to Juventus. And Kulisevsky, I think, was was delighted to go to Tottenham he wanted to, he wanted to come here and work with Conte and everything but if Paratici hadn't come in then maybe Arsenal and Juventus would have done a deal and Kulisevsky would have gone to Arsenal and if that had happened I think the season would look very different because Tottenham Arsenal would have been better and Tottenham would have been would not have been so good they wouldn't have been nearly as good like Kulisevsky's been brilliant absolutely and Benton Kerr's been amazing as well because you know we didn't know back then that Skip wouldn't be wouldn't play in the second half of the season and even if he had played the second half of the season, it would have been his first season at this level. And it's, you know, there's certainly question marks about whether, as a young player, he would have been able to sustain his form. So I think that, I, you know, in the same way that we talked about, can I think of a precedent for this in terms of a manager coming in mid-season improving the team so much? Can I think of a team that's had a January transfer window that has elevated them that much? I'm not sure I can. And noticeably, noticeably Manchester United, West Ham and Arsenal brought in nobody yeah. in, in, in that same don't time. Sign two top players who come straight into the first team, play every single game, excel in their positions and make the whole team much, much better. It just doesn't happen in January at all. 
I mean, people Vidic and Ever, I guess, is like the famous January signing. But, but that's that's January, 15 but years ago. Even, yeah, that and was they took like a little while. A Ever took and a they weren't while. even instant plugins. Yeah. Whereas these guys were instant plugins into the team. That's crazy. Like it just doesn't. It, it does not happen. Um, and I think in hindsight, and it, you know, that will go down as one of Tottenham's best windows. And it really, it just it buttresses it, as well as this being a story about Conte's triumph. I think people will and should already start talking about what an amazing year Paratici's had, you know, from being the from having kind of stumbling his way around the summer, trying and failing to get various managers. He's now delivered three top, top, top players who have made this Tottenham team what they are. Even the first four weeks of the January transfer window, he was, you know, a complete joke figure and or even a hate figure amongst the Spurs fans because he hadn't Lewis signed Diaz. anyone. All of that. And yep. even there was a lot of sneering at the... And, and I, I, um, I wouldn't say I was serious, but I certainly un- had sympathy for the fact that you bring in this talent spotter who, on the face of it, doesn't bring anyone in for four weeks and then calls up his old mates at Juve and says, can I have a couple of your cast-offs? I mean, that that was very much the narrative and an understandable one. But also, the thing is, I mean, even the level of investment in January, that's un- Spurs have never really done that. And, and very few teams do do that. But But I think as well, and I know we're guilty sometimes of being too Conte-centric. But even that shows you the power that he has because I'm sure even with Spurs... How many times have we said Spurs are so close to the top four or they're so close to a tight challenge? All they need to do in January is buy one or two players. Dating back to 2012 and the infamous Ryan Nelson, Louis Saha transfer window. It's always the one. Even Jose Mourinho last year, he didn't have the political clout to say to Daniel Levy, we're borderline for the top four here. Get me one or two players in. But Conte has that... He has the chairman's ear. He is so demanding. He is so convincing that he could say, you know, I mean, we saw it throughout January. We had to listen to him basically saying every week, bring me some effing players was kind of the, you know, the subtext of every press conference. And they listened. And that shows you the the power that Conte has. And, and then in February, after that Burnley game, he was told he'd be backed in the summer. And, you know, the, the, part of the reason he did stay was because Levy and Paratici were absolutely on his side rather than the players or anyone else's. But, yeah, I mean, that January is such a huge moment. Even if, it's not, you know, even if Arsenal, it's not even Kudusevsky that he would need to go to Arsenal for that to show how big a shift, even if he just hadn't joined Spurs. You know, I think, you know, yeah. it was only two points in the end. And you look at... Arsenal went for the not bring anyone in. They also were linked with um, Felipe Melo, the other Juventus central midfielder, but they could only get him on an 18-month loan, so decided that wasn't what they wanted to do. But we, we don't know if he'd have had the same impact as Bentancur, but Bentancur, the way he's come in and just settled so quickly, and this is a point Jack's made as well, with, with that, that's also testament to Conte's coaching, that you do have these plug-in-and-play options. <laughs> you know, he's not someone who... It takes years to kind of get used to his methods. The fact that they were two weeks after their debut, they both excelled in a three-two win at the Etihad against Man City. That really is amazing. It, ultimately, this this particular bit of the story is in, is itself inseparable from Conte. There's no way that Kulusevski and Benton Co would have been so good under um, under a different manager. Whereas I I know for, I know for a fact that those two feel that they were able to adjust very very quickly because of Conte. Like he's so. He's so clear in what he wants. He's so precise in his instructions that they knew that simply by simply by 
following Conte's orders and doing what Conte wanted, they could get up to speed. I think I think for those two, the hardest thing was probably the, the physical side at the at start because the Juventus has sort of de- declined a bit in terms of their physical intensity over the last few years. I don't think Allegri's been particularly strong on that since he took that job. Being so written off by James a, and Danny must have hurt them as well. That must have been very yeah, tough mentally. Well, certainly Kulusevski after, I Remember think, Remember when we all said that was slow? <laughs> yeah, he was. Shows their mental strength. They pinned that podcast up yeah. on the dressing room wall. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure they the loop. did. <laughs> I'm sure Just, they but, did. I... But that is sorry. That is a really important point, Jack makes because there's every chance Kudelski and Bentancur could have gone to Juve, to, could have gone to Man United, and we'd be saying these two are absolute donkeys. They can't play yeah, exactly. <laughs> because they'd have been in a completely dysfunctional system. And this is what I've said so many times before about Klopp and Vinaldum and Robertson and these players. They are, you know, these were players signed from relegated clubs, let alone Juventus, and they became superstars because they were properly coached. Well, this is just the ultimate truth of football, which is that managers make players look better. And it's, it's so easy for people Pochettino. to say, yeah, oh, and Dombele's shit. Well, no, he's all Lo Celso's shit. Like, no, they're not. They're really, really good players who were signed for a manager who then got sacked and then they had the wrong managers. So, you know, if we all know that Spurs have gone, Spurs has not been a good place for players to develop and improve over the last five years, but maybe it is again now. And maybe if Kulisewski and Bentengur had played you know, the sort of back end of Pochettino and Jose and Nuno eras, they would look rubbish as well. Mm. Yeah, and, and absolutely right to credit the manager, but also let's credit the individuals. Kulusevski, in half a season, is more than halfway up the the goals uh, involvement chart, um, way above players who who have much bigger reputations. And I know it's, it's difficult because Manchester City is a great squad, and, but way above what it cost a hundred million pounds. Who may have a great season next year? We'll see what happens with Jack Grealish. All right, phase three, according to your piece, and this is the the thing I really want to warm my hands on. <laughs> is the other day I was asked on the radio station I work for, what does the word Spursy mean? And of course, everybody else said it means the ability to throw away things and to be a bit. Flaky in finals and semi-finals and all the rest of it. I have to say, to me, um, and of course, I'm a Spurs fan of long-standing. Spurs, he means doing things that you don't ever see any other club doing. Occasionally, doing amazing things. And the run-in they've just had, which backed up Charlie's idea that they were going to finish fourth, even when I'd long since given up on that on that idea, was fantastically Spursy. Out of nowhere, um, they put together a run that, frankly, in March. Spurs were six points behind the team who were fourth, and they had played a game less. But more importantly, they were eighth. They were still eighth in March. But then they put together a run, Jack, that, you know, you can't resist teams that are piling up points. You know, Manchester City and Liverpool and Spurs in that last third of the season were just piling up points. Yeah, in terms of, like, consistent... In terms of that consistent level of league form and the number of points they've really got, in the last few months. I know we keep saying this, but it is it is just like the kind of peak Pochettino years. It's something that top, we haven't seen from Tottenham, is this level of consistency. And even now, I mean, we now know, it was very upsetting at the time, but even now, now we can say that even the Brighton and Brentford wobble was just, you know, two bad performances, uh, maybe a little bit of variance, but not too, not something worth getting that upset about in hindsight, because we know that this is a really good team. Like it's the fact they managed to, the fact they managed to go from Nuno to finishing the season with 71 points shows you that their overall level is higher than that. Like this is, 
I think this is give or take a kind of 80-point team at the moment if they were to play a whole season with a preseason, everyone fit. And I think the next season, their ceiling should be even higher because they'll, assuming Conte's still there, because they'll be able to get even better players More in. More about that in increase. other podcasts, yeah. yeah. Uh, they'll be able to get better players in. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, look, they're not as good as City and Liverpool, but I think that I think that they're the next best team. I said the other week that I think they're better than Chelsea and people shouted at me on the internet, which I'm quite thick-skinned about now, but I, yeah. I think it's true. Like, even though they had those three bad defeats to Chelsea in January... I feel like Tottenham and Chelsea are currently heading in different directions. Yeah, Conte said, I can't remember what it was, I think in April sometime, he's like, he'd love to play Chelsea now. Um, I bet he would. And you can understand that because they were they were battered. You know, those three defeats in January, Spurs didn't score a goal. It was miserable. Can you imagine, can you imagine how, let's say hypothetically they were, they were to play Chelsea tomorrow um, in, in a game which was not a friendly can you imagine how graceless he would be if they won? How much he, how much he would milk it? It would be, especially if it were at Stamford Bridge, you'd get the full. It would be like uh, Jose at Old Trafford, two thousand and four stuff. He would be, he would be completely. I can't even, I can't even, th- I can't even come up with the right words for how much he would rub it in their faces and how much, how glee, how kind of smug and gleeful he would be about beating Chelsea if it were to happen. I do I do guess Spurs have benefited in recent uh, times from his obsessional nature, but he might want to let the Chelsea thing just go a little <laughs> bit before it drives him mad. Well, that was a thing. That that was a thing was told before that, the first game in January, that he was even more on edge and intense than usual. And I think some of the players were a bit like, okay, you, you know, you this, this is bordering on obsession with Chelsea. And then obviously the fact that Chelsea beat them 2-0 and then it prompted that, tirade um yeah it was like maybe you need to get well, over this but the best way to get over it, it would be to beat them it was telling the fact that you know what every single game he's been here he's played 3-4-3 three, three, except for that one yeah. Chelsea game where clearly you know he thought I've got to I've got to kind of think outside of the box here and go for uh, a, what was really a very weird and unsuccessful 4-4-2 experiment just for that one game because he was so desperate to, to to get one over on Chelsea. Quite a pep thing to do. Although he, they they did have injuries to be fair, but um, they did, it, yeah. it, it was it was still it did still catch people by surprise. So what what were the factors? You know, the manager's been there a few months. He they they're now only playing one game per week. What were the factors and the among the players and the team that allowed them to have this tremendous run uh, to the line? Was it just the form of 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 Kane and Son, or were there other things as well that mattered? I think the defence shouldn't be underestimated. Spurs conceded five goals in their last eleven games. It's it's incredible. That's wow, isn't it? Yeah. Think how much of a liability that defence was uh, under Mourinho, and even for you know for quite a bit of the Conte era. And we're talking then about you know players like and the last year under Pochettino, they were yeah, conceding yeah, lots yeah. of goals away from home. Absolutely, yeah. and you know a lot of that's been done with second choice options Sanchez has come in for the final few games we've had Royale instead of Doherty we've had Sessignon instead of Regulon but so much of that is linked to the one game a week because they've had actual proper time you know they they do a lot of uh, shape work basically daily and if you're doing daily shape work and you have a full week that 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 creates that system where everyone knows what they're doing they do a lot of video with the whole squad and the whole team so not just the back five so everyone knows where to be and that's why as well and I was saying this and Conte made this point that when when they did draw nil nil with bright uh, with Brentford having lost one nil to Brighton and it was how you know why are you still playing this system a big reason was because we're not conceding goals 
<laughs> this system is enabling us to not concede goals. And if you don't concede goals and you've got Kane and Son and Kudelski in your team, as basic as that sounds, that's a pretty good recipe. And so fixing that defence and having proper time with that defence, with the one game a week, was was absolutely crucial. And it allowed them then to, as you say, Danny, just hoover up points in that period. The other thing that stood out to me, which is kind of connected to how good the defence is, which again is, you know, a triumph of coaching, especially given that Romero missed the last three games of the season and we thought that he was the real kind of linchpin of the team, is that over this run-in, I think Spurs have played with this amazing kind of now sort of experience canniness in a way which wouldn't normally be associated where with did that Spurs, come which from is kind of the antithesis of the whole like inverted commas spursy thing like the arsenal game is the case in point arsenal was so energetic and enthusiastic in that first 10 minutes they were all over tottenham and tottenham were just so much cleverer than them and even you can see that in the way that in the way they saw out the burnley game for example like i thought i didn't think Tot- i think tottenham were pretty bad actually mm. in burnley Poor. and they got lucky with a a joke penalty decision but they were so like they even managed to do something which we saw them do a million times unsuccessfully under Jose which is go 1-0 up try and mm. you know don't score a second sit back get at risk of conceding but they were managed but, but they managed to do it in a way that they couldn't do it in the Mourinho era and then of course you know not blowing it at Norwich and just playing their natural game under pressure is itself a function of of having that right mental approach so I think, and I think a lot of, I mean, clearly that stems from Conte, but I think it also stems from the fact that this is not, you know, this is a very experienced Spurs team, you know, that the spine of the team. Down the middle, look, absolutely. Yeah. Been there 10 Dyer. years. Dyer's, be, Dyer's been there 8 years. Davis has been there 8 years. Davis has been there 8 years. hundreds of games for Juve. Yeah. Yeah, Hoiberg is, Hoiberg's actually not that old, but no. he's, he's kind of like an old player, yeah. even though he's in his mid-20s. And then Kane and Son have been there for a long time. So you put all those guys together, you've got a very experienced spine of the team. And I think all those guys are so loyal to Conte and they're so able to kind of execute his plans that that gives Tottenham a really a really solid base uh, to be an experienced team. The one other thing I want to mention, before, just, just so it doesn't get forgotten, is Son and the Golden Boot. Yeah, sure. To get 20, what, 23 non-penalty mm-hmm, goals? Yep. In a season, I mean that is incredible. You know, most most Golden Boot winners obviously have scored lots and lots of penalties. Son doesn't take penalties, so that is a big achievement in itself. Also, it's not just it's not twenty three non penalty goals for City or Liverpool. It's twenty three non penalty goals for a team which, as we said earlier, was abs- was was rubbish for the first quarter of the season and didn't create or score any chance. Didn't didn't create any chances. And even under Conte early on, they had moments where they wouldn't create chances or score goals. So under those circumstances, playing with, you know, it's not like he's playing with De Bruyne or Thiago or or someone of that level. To do all of that in under these circumstances from Son is an amazing achievement. And I'm, I, given how little, how I mean, I've got a piece on this coming soon, I think, but given how little, I think he's starting to get credit from like the broader football world, but he wasn't in that shortlist for... PFA Fans Player of the Year. I mean, let's wait and see what the PFA Player of the Year shortlist is on the first of June. I think he, he you know, he was, wasn't in the runner for FWA Football of the Year. Although I, I can't complain about that. I didn't vote for him. I voted for Kevin De Bruyne. But I think that Son, Son is, ob, you know, listeners don't need us to tell them to tell them this, but Son is obviously an unbelievable player, and it's been a sort of joy to watch him this season. It's a mark of whatever the team and Antonio Conte have done that um, since Conte arrived, Harry Kane is the second highest goal scorer mm-hmm. in the Premier League, 
only Son has scored more. So the first Incredible. and second highest goal scorers are both playing for a team that were eighth in March. It is absolutely remarkable. Well done uh, to Son. And of course, he's, he, you know, once you get past payment, the, the, the handful of idiots out there who think he's all about diving, he's obviously such a nice man who loves playing the game of football. And loves being at Spurs. I mean, yeah. you know, part of this great mystery as to why no one comes in for him. Because he never gives is, any signals, does he? He never he gives any signals and he's always on a long-term contract. You know, he, he signed another one last summer. So mm. that, uh, you know, and that's in an age where, you know, we talk so often about mercenary players and players moving on a lot more than they used to or whatever. He is someone who genuinely seems to love the club even though he is someone who, like Harry Kane, should have been hoovering up trophies, you know, and he turns 30, mm. uh, Son, in July. I think it's worth reiterating what a what a good piece of timing it was for Tottenham that they agreed that new long, long-term long contract with Son in the kind of autumn of 2020, which was then announced at the end of the 2021 season after everything else had got cleared up off the pitch because that has... Re- I mean, that secures Son at Tottenham for the rest of his He's used for career, yes. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's hugely beneficial because you know under if things under a different set of circumstances you can see Bayern Munich Real Madrid whoever coming in for Son like he's good enough he's good enough to play for everyone but he's um, you know he's now he's, what he's been at Tottenham for for seven years now he's been brilliant for six years and hope I'm sure he's you know given how good he's been I'm sure he's got another I don't know, I wouldn't want to speculate, but a good few seasons of very, very high-level football left in him. And if um, if the adventures of the last uh, 12 months have persuaded Harry Kane that his natural home is his actual home, then Spurs can look forward to another, at least th- perhaps three years, a pair of them, tearing it up. It's, it's an amazingly joyful thought. That's one of the reasons I'm happy about how good Tottenham have been recently, is because the idea of having two world-class players in their peak years at Tottenham and the rest of the team being rubbish really sucks. Like, it's just, it, it feels kind of, I mean, if, on one level, it feels quite unfair on Kane and Son that they should be carrying a bad team because they're obviously good enough to be in a really good team. And they were under Poch and now they are in a very good team again, having had a, a, a difficult two few years spell in between. So yeah, I'm, I think we're all very much looking forward to seeing how well Kane and Son do again next season in the Champions League, where they deserve to be. The people listening to that um, will want me to say, as a Spurs fan, I don't share that view at all. They're lucky they get to wear a Spurs shirt every week. How lucky are they um, as young men? Right, but you would rather... That's true, Danny, but you would rather they were in a good Spurs team than a bad oh, Spurs team. Oh, I would. Oh, yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. I would. But I'd still like to keep them prisoner in a bad team rather than go somewhere okay, else. Well, fair enough. Um, Just one last thing, guys, son. Very small thing. I, I'm really pleased as well, given how two-footed he is. He finishes with more goals with his left, and it's a really nice 12 with his left, 11 with his right, which feels appropriate for the most. He needs to improve in the air, that lad, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that. That is the problem. Um, but yeah, yeah, that feels um, fitting somehow. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, I mean, there, there can't be many many other players who do that, can there? No, I mean, he equals Van Persie. Van Persie has the re- equal record of twelve with his weaker foot in eleven twelve, but he got eighteen uh, or eighteen with his left and head that season. So to to get more with your weaker foot and score that many is extremely rare and has probably never happened. I'm going to risk spoiling myself here for something that I've written, which I think is coming out soon. But one of the interesting things about Son, if you look at it kind of graphically, is how he's actually, he's taking more of his shots inside the penalty area now than before. Like I know his his second goal yesterday, that 
whipped from like say 25 yards or 20 20 ish yards out from a slight angle which was like the one he scored on the first day of the season Mm. neatly enough against Manchester City for me that's like the classic Son finish like 20 yards out slight angle whipped to the far corner but this year he's scored if you look he's he's actually he's taking he's got his highest xg per shot than I think we've seen before because increasingly he's getting in position to score what you might call Manchester City goals as in like Mm. running centrally down the middle of the penalty area to convert a low cross from Kane or Kulisewski or a wing totally. back or, or whoever. So he's getting in those. So if you look at it graphically, you can see lots more of Sonny's shots this season are coming from in and around the penalty spot rather than the edge of the box, which I think shows how he's no longer just like the guy you stick out on the left because he runs mm. he runs back and forth and he, press it and he presses well. He's now like a deadly number nine. And he's been given the opportunity by Kane falling deeper as well there's exactly, a space yeah. for him to run into but I think Spurs know this because I think I, some I know that people at Spurs realize now that you can't just you can't stick Son on the left anymore mm. like it's not he's he's bigger and better it's a, it's than a waste now. of like, it he, it's a waste he's of a, he's a number nine yeah. yeah he's a deadly number nine now in a way that you know he he's, he wasn't when he I mean even when he showed up he was a great player but he wasn't a deadly number nine he's scored what one in I think he's scored one in three for Bayer Leverkusen and one in three for Hamburg Give or take, and now you know he's he's up there with the the best forwards in the league, as you can see by how the amazing number of goals that he scores. And on Sunday, on a day of many joys, the in a world full of slightly cynical professional footballers, to see how much genuine joy he got from receiving a rather ugly golden boot on a <laughs> castor written on it um, was was it was itself lovely. Uh, so let's just very let's finish this podcast. I could talk here for the next six hours, but let's finish it now to give ourselves something to, to look forward to on Thursday. I would actually rather talk for the next six hours than do the other less fun, slightly more difficult bits of work that I have to do today. Oh, so oh. I've got no complaints, Dan. Okay, well, I, I've actually stay on the line. I've got to prepare for a three-hour radio show, but I... I, I, I what we, better we, way? Yeah, exactly. Just stick here with you two. Blood <laughs> um, Blue Sky, we've now seen the prospective seedings for most of the Champions League groups. What kind of uh, group do you want Spurs to get, Charlie? Uh, so there seems to me to be two very distinct possibilities. A group of death, or there is a possibility of really quite manageable games that get you through to the last 16. I think ideally you want a combo, don't you? You, you don't want to spoil yourself and have all the fun trips too early. That means you're not in the last 16. Spurs will be in pot two, by the way. I should tell people they're seeded in the second pot, aren't they? Which is... Re- which is- pretty high isn't it given that they haven't been in the last couple of seasons is that just is that based on their performance or the premier isn't league's a performance or a combo? Yeah, club coefficient yeah okay uh it's club coefficient and spurs would have i think the lowest like one of the lowest coefficients from pot two but i think they would they would make it into pot two they wouldn't drop down into pot three i guess they, they, they were in the final three years ago so that that goes yeah. a long way i think my view on this is i'd like spurs to have I want Spurs to be playing games I haven't played before. I don't want to be seeing Spurs play. So, you know, all due respect to Borussia Dortmund, but I've yeah, seen, I've been, I've been to enough Spurs against Dortmund games over the last few years, home and away. So I would like, so from pot one, I would like them to get PSG or Porto, two teams who I don't I don't remember them having played recently, unless my unless I've, I've forgotten it. Uh, two great cities, two great stadiums. Uh, those would be two great trips. Also, Eintracht Frankfurt. I don't remember Tottenham having played recently. And also, they're the lower, you know, because they're in pot one by virtue of having won the Europa League, they'd have the lowest coefficient of any pot one team. So that would be fun. I know that some Spurs fans would like a, another game against Ajax. 
obviously hmm. for obvious reasons. Um, obviously, Tottenham are in part two. Then from part three, not Dortmund, not Inter because they played them. Napoli not would by, be Napoli not would be great. Houston. Napoli would be great. Amazing trip. Napoli is a that sounds like a classic a classic tie. Uh, Sporting Lisbon would be fantastic. Brilliant city. Brilliant place. city. Yeah. Also, uh, Red Bull Salzburg. That would be a fun tie. And then Shakhtar Donetsk would be fascinating, but I'm not sure. I assume they they play in Lviv, but I genuinely don't know. And of course, Marseille. Marseille, I think, is the pot three team that I would like Tottenham to play the most. I don't... I've never They're been pot to four, aren't they, Marseille? So Wikipedia, who might be wrong, says pot three or pot four, depending on... Right. I think they'll be right on the borderline, uh, depending on where. Copenhagen, the, 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 FC Copenhagen, that would be cool to go to Copenhagen. Oh, and the the two Glasgow clubs. So Celtic are definitely going through into pot four, having won the Scottish League. Rangers are going to be in the playoff. So it's kind of touch and go whether or not Rangers will be in there. But seeing Tottenham, I know that Tottenham are playing friendly at Ibrox yeah. anyway this year, but Tottenham at Ibrox or Celtic Park, I think would be fantastic. And it also would. easier for Tottenham fans to get to. Because of the friendly, that's less appealing. Yeah, uh, maybe. Go to Ibrox twice, at, or even Glasgow Can twice. Can I just I say, I'd... guys, listen to us, picking and choosing which Champions <laughs> League opponents. We, I know I asked you to. Um, we, we like Spurs. We've earned the right, Danny. Yeah. Danny, we've earned we the have, right. Tottenham totally. haven't played the Champions League since March 2020. And, you know, it's been it's been a lot of Pachos de Ferreira, all due respect to Pachos de Ferreira. And Mura or Mura. Uh, between now and Mura. Yeah, Mura. I can't believe United aren't going to get to play Mura. It's so unfair that they... That, they yeah. avoided the Conference League. That just that that had to happen. Club Bruges would be fun. Bruges, yeah, Bruges. Bruges is so nice. I went there for the first time last year. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, it's really good. And you could just say bits from in Bruges when you go around there. Exactly. Yeah. And also, it's, it's just so so let, much let, to recommend. Let's it. be honest, Belgium chips and beer. What's not to like about Belgium? <laughs> Genuinely, when I was in Bruges, it was like chocolate chips, beer, muscles, waffles. Waffle. It was like this is. Absolutely incredible. And yeah. There's just an incredible yeah. cuisine, isn't it? Uh, I was great. there in November. It was like, you know, Christmas markets were starting. It was like, this is like the best place ever. No wonder Eden Hazard's got a big bum, eh? And <laughs> <laughs> listen. But yeah, yesterday was quite funny. Conte just would, he, a couple of times, clearly he'd forgotten Spurs were in the Champions League in 1920 because he kept saying things like, you know, haven't played since the final three years ago and it's been three years. It was like, I know it was a forgettable season for them but they did lose 7-2 at Bayern at home to Bayern yeah. that might have I think we should do a kind of uh, like a retrospective piece on the Champions League campaign that time forgot Tottenham's, 29, Tottenham's legendary 2019-20 yeah. season featuring Eric Red Dyer Star Belgrade hooked, Eric Dyer getting hooked against Olympiacos yeah. Tottenham getting absolutely mullered at home by no pun intended by Bayern Munich in my second um, day in the job Wow, and I can't even remember what what who else got Olympiacos and Red Star. Red Star and they Red battered Star. home and away, right, um, right. The the last uh, away game of the Pochettino era was uh, Red Star away, and they won four now. Timo Werner in the last sixteen, yes, whatever happened to Sabitzer. Him. Well, listen, there's been a very happy ending to the season. We will continue to broadcast throughout the summer, but uh, let's just say thank you very much for those who've listened to us on this mad journey that Spurs have had so far. Stick with us through the summer. We'll be back on Thursday. We'll be looking, uh, we'll be uh, hosting our end of season awards and we'll have another View from the Lane quiz, um, which Charlie will once again expose himself as the most competitive human being on the planet. And did I just use the phrase Charlie would expose himself? I think I did. Um, <laughs> and remember, if you're not, I think Jack would give me a run for my money there. Okay, well, if you're... When it comes to quizzes. I, I look forward to it hugely. I'm really looking forward to everyone. We'll we might be teaming up as a sort of horrible mo- two most aggro-y quiz people 
combining. Sunas and Kane. Yeah, against James. So that's it. Come back Thursday if you want. Um, we really would welcome you. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can sign up right now and read all of the articles on Spurs, including Jack and Charlie's fantastic article this morning on how Spurs won their way back into the Champions League. You'll also get access to everything else on the site, which is a mountain of stuff. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Sign up right now for just £1 a month for the first six months. That's The Athletic dot com forward slash spurs pod we'll be back on thursday hope you can join us then thank you for listening and come on you spurs the athletic